Good to see you guys. If you got your Bible, grab it, open it up. First uh, Peter uh, chapter two is where we're going to be. We're going to be continuing our series uh, that we're called uh, we're calling Honorable Exiles this morning. And the, uh, if you guys have been here the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, we've been talking about our individual identity through Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be looking at the collective aspect of our identity, the collective aspect of our identity in Jesus. So if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Hmm. Jesus, we love you because you are alive. You have died and you have resurrected from the dead and alive now. We thank you for that. Because of that, we love you. We give you our praise today. We give you honor that's due to you. We give up our lives and submit them to you today. We love you. God, we thank you for choosing us and saving us and bringing us closer to you and to one another, for showing us mercy and making us the people of God. And God, I just pray right now that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that you would help me speak plainly and truthfully and imaginatively so that we can picture and almost see what you're trying to say to us. Open up our ears now, Lord. We love you. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, when was the first time that you remember being embarrassed about who your family was? 
Can you, just think about that. Seriously, for a second. How young were you? You're, can you remember, when was the first time you remember being embarrassed about who your family was? Was it in middle school when you asked your mom for the third time, please stop walking me to the bus stop? Was that when you were embarrassed with your family? When, when was it? Was it in high school, you know, when your daddy picked you up after school in his gym shorts and white socks and sandals? Was it then? Maybe, maybe it wasn't your parents at all. Maybe it was one of your own kids who embarrassed you because they were just so different from all the other kids, or maybe they were just different from the rest of the family. You know, why can't they just be normal around my friends? Why do they got to dress like that? Why do they got to talk like that? I don't even understand what they're talking about. There are times when our families say and do things that embarrass us. They do. They can call unwanted attention to our weaknesses. They can make our social life very uncomfortable for us because of our association with them. And when that happens, we generally just want to hide from them, don't we? Or, or at least we want to hide the fact that we are related to them, that we are associated with our family. And in that same way, brothers and sisters, we live in a period of time when it can be shameful to be a part of the church. Following Jesus as an individual, that's allowable. That's understandable. Why? Because that's personal spirituality. And everyone's got their own personal spirituality. So that's tolerable. But to visibly, to visibly and actively identify with other Christians as a collective group, well, that is organized religion. And that's embarrassing. Should be ashamed of that. So here's the question today. Do you remember the first time that you were embarrassed to admit that you weren't just a Christian, but that you were a church going Christian? We've all experienced this. When was the first time for you? Maybe, maybe you're living with that feeling of embarrassment right now today, which is why it's difficult for you to invite non believing friends to worship gatherings or into your life group, or maybe even into your own home for a dinner. And I just want to say this. If that's you, I get that. I understand that. Okay? I, I feel that, too, from time to time. And here's why. There is pressure on us as believers to avoid visibly identifying ourselves with the church because we know it might exclude us from running in other social groups, right? It might exclude us from other social opportunities. There can be a stigma put on us. There is a real sense that when our neighbors, friends, or even our own family find out what we believe and who we associate with, they might shame us. And you know that. We know that. They might shame us. They might say things like this. You know what? We could tolerate this whole I'm a new person thing. We could tolerate that when it was just a relationship between you and Jesus. We, we could kind of get that. Those people that you're committed to, they're weird. <laughs> like, they're weird. They're strange. They hold backwards, offensive beliefs. They have strange behaviors 
I mean, we just watch, like, they don't act like everybody else that we know in society. They're weird. How can you want to be associated with them? How can you want to do life with those people? We thought you were our people, and now you're their people? When unbelievers shame us, we are tempted to fall back from the visible church. You know, just keep this private, personal relationship with Jesus that I have. And, 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 you know, everything can seem so much easier if I just go that route. If you felt that, come on. We've all felt that. But, but here's the thing. Peter's encouragement to you and to me this morning is to go in the opposite direction when we're feeling that pressure. Even though belonging might feel uncomfortable for you and for me, it is a part of a bigger plan that God has. And we need to know that. Here's what I want to tell you today. God wants us to come closer, to come closer to his church because he is building something beautiful out of it. God wants you and me to come closer to his church because he's building something beautiful out of it. Now, what exactly is God building? Well, God is building us into the people of God. God is building us into the people of God. Let's go to the text here, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, this is progressive. And this is post-conversion Peter's talking about. It's repeatedly, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as believers, we are continuously coming to Christ. This is not like Peter's writing to like all these five churches and they're all brand new Christians. They've been Christians a while, just like some of us. So we are continuously coming to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, something happens. Our relationship with Jesus is a dynamic relationship. Did you know that? It's not a box we check off on a piece of paper. I have a relationship. Go get groceries, you know, fix the house. No, it's a dynamic, ongoing thing. It's a dynamic coming to Jesus that is further, we're going further up and further in into knowing Christ. And Peter says that when, as we progressively, progressively come closer and closer into intimacy with Jesus, something also should happen. We should progressively come closer and closer to other born-again believers. We are the materials of a building project that God is financing and constructing. That's what he's saying. Christians are a part of something much bigger than themselves, much bigger than your own individual plan for your life. And that requires us being in close proximity with one another. And see, this is really important because we live in a culture, all cultures have idols and our culture has some idols too, some things that they value above and beyond God. We live in a culture that idolizes being your own person. Amen? Express yourself. It idolizes being an individual. That's the highest unit of society as far as our culture is determined. 
being free from everyone else so that you can be free to do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, as long as you want to do it till you want to stop doing it. That's what our culture idolizes. And guys, you breathe that in. I know you don't think you do, but you do. You drink it and imbibe it in. So do I. I know you don't think you do, but we do. Because it's everywhere we go. That's our culture that we live in. The gospel shows just how small-minded and short-sighted that kind of life is compared to what God is building. That's the purpose of this part of 1 Peter. It's It's a wonderful thing. God is not just redeeming random individuals. God is redeeming a people. He calls it his people, a people for his own possession, right? Believing Jews and Gentiles. God's people collectively are going to visibly stand out from all the other little people groups of the world like a huge skyscraper on the top of a big hill. Jesus said it this way. You're a city on a hill. Everyone's going to see that. It's not going to be hidden. There's the people of God. Where are they? Right there. You can see them. So I want you guys to picture this picture, if you would, a master builder, and he's gathering up stones for this architectural masterpiece that he's going to create. Can you picture this guy? And he's like, okay, I gotta get the building materials for this. He's gonna build this big edifice, this big structure. He's got his wheelbarrow. It's this big, massive wheelbarrow, if you can picture this, and he's going out, and he's looking for building material, right? He's gathering up stones. He's going down the road. He's looking down the field, and he's gathering up these stones that are individual stones just kind of scattered throughout the field, scattered on the road, that have been rejected by other builders. The other builders have said, hey, that's not very good building material. I don't want that one. I don't want that one. I don't want that one. This master builder has got his wheelbarrow, and he's saying, you know what? I'm going to choose that one. I'm going to pick that one and that one. And I know they've been rejected, but I want them. I want them. And he's putting these stones in his wheelbarrow, and then he gets over to the work site. And he doesn't just jump, dump all the stones and the rocks in a big pile, big mound, and walk off and go, there it is. No, there's some structure to this thing. What he does is he takes all the little individual stones and he starts carving them and shaping them just the way he wants them. And he starts taking, and he puts the stones together the way he wants them, the way they're going to fit the way they're going to show off exactly, because he's got the big idea. He knows what this thing's going to look like. And so he, he adjusts, he moves, he mortars together all the stones, one on top of another, exactly the way he wants to structure this thing. And together, they're going to be more than they could ever have been individually. And Peter says, it is a huge honor to be a small stone chosen for God's epic architectural masterpiece. It's an honor. God honored you when he did this for you. Let's go back to to verse 9. Go down to verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race. So he's he's just talked about people that have rejected this, and now he's going to say, but you're not like that. You've embraced Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his 
own possession. Now, I don't even have time to unpack all that, but every single phrase in that sentence, it comes from somewhere in the Old Testament. He's just stacking phrase upon phrase, metaphor upon metaphor, and Peter is applying them, get this, not to individuals, but to a collective people called the church. It comes from Deuteronomy and Exodus and Isaiah and Ezekiel. He's applying them collectively to the church. A race is a group of people, right? A priesthood is a group of people. A nation is what? A group of, you guys are great, you're catching on. It's a group of people. I am talking to you, right? Peter is saying that the people of God, as a group, as a group, share the honor. We share the honor as a group, the blessing of being called the people of God. I'm not the church all by myself. You're not the church all by yourself. I don't care how, you're not that spiritual. Nobody's that spiritual. We do this together. And, and he says this, through the cornerstone, that's like what we would say the, the, the foundation, the bedrock. That's the big stone on the bottom that the building's getting built on. Through the cornerstone, who's Jesus Christ, God is making us together a part of something that is very, very old and has an honorable heritage. It's a heritage of people being rescued from their sins constantly, over and over, being rescued from their sins. It's a heritage of people who have the wonderful promises of God. They're ours now. It's a heritage of people whom God cut a covenant with to be their God, even though they constantly break their promises to him. That's our heritage. That's your heritage if you're born again. Though we forsake God so that we can be like all the cool kids, and we do, we can be like all the other people groups that are out there, God has promised through Christ the cornerstone to not forsake his people. Isn't that good news? That should make you smile today. Though we at times act like hypocrites, and Christians, we are hypocrites from time to time. Though we act like hypocrites, though we deny that we know God with our actions and our behaviors and our choices, though we deny that we really know God with our mouths, the things that we say, God has mercifully promised through Christ not to deny that he knows us. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. If we have truly been born again, and if we have received God's mercy in Jesus, this honor is ours. It is ours, brothers and sisters. No matter how much we embarrass ourselves or embarrass one another, or embarrass him. When you follow Christ, you are not a lone individual left without a heritage. Though you may be excluded from your family heritage now, you're not left without a heritage. Isn't that great? You are not left without a country, though you may be rejected by your own countrymen. Isn't that great? Christ has made you part of his chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So do not be ashamed of identifying with the church, though she is flawed right now. 
Don't be ashamed to be identified with her. Though she is a building that's not fully put together, she is the precious people of God. And she has been given the promises of God. And when you speak about the church, you need to speak about her as precious. Because she's precious to God. She's easy to tear down. She's precious to God. And she has the promises of God. Every stone that is added to her makes her more and more complete. So here's my question for you today, family. What step could you take to more fully identify with the people of God? What step could you take to more fully, visibly identify with the people of God? So God is building uh, us together into a community called the people of God. But why is he doing this? Great question, right? Why he's doing this building project, but why is he doing this? Well, God's people collectively proclaim God's glory. That's why he's building a people. God's people collectively proclaim God's glory. Let's go to the text, verse 9 and 10. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that, here it is, there's the purpose, that you, and that's y'all, that's you all together collectively, that you may proclaim, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. And this is what you're proclaiming. This is what we are proclaiming. Great architects, the great ones, they've always wanted to craft structures and buildings that are not only functional for people, but take people's breath away. You know that? They want to they do artwork. That's part of what architecture is. It's an artifact. It's art. They want to build something that makes everybody else that goes and sees it go like, how did they do that? How'd they do that so well? I think of the Parthenon in Greece. Like, how old is that thing? It's still standing. It's still standing. (laughs) Is that not amaze you to think about that? I think about the Taj Mahal in India, St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow, with all of its brilliant colors. It's like big scoops of ice cream on top, doesn't it? That's what I think of. I think of the Eiffel Tower in France. These are some of the most instantly recognizable, their most iconic structures ever designed and constructed by human hands. Millions of people flock to go see these buildings every single year for year after year. They are iconic because they are massive, they are expensive. They are detailed. There's been great attention to detail in these things. They've taken years to build, and above all, they are absolutely gorgeous to the human eye. That's why they're so iconic. 
These architectural masterpieces show off the brilliance of the person who designed them and completed the project. They are, in a very real sense, monuments to the builder. They're monuments to the architect and builders. So get this. Peter tells us that's kind of like the way God's going to fill this earth with his glory. Like that. He's using stuff you and I see every day and we can understand. Isn't that amazing? To put it another way, the way God is going to show the entire watching world just how brilliant of an architect he is, he is, is by building the largest, most detailed, most expensive, and most breathtaking building in human history. It's going to be a building that's so huge that no one could possibly miss seeing it. But it's also a building so majestic that everyone who sees it will be forced to say, only God could have built that. Not a human hand. And once it's completed, this building is going to proclaim constantly all day and all night that God alone is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely merciful and infinitely just. Like the Taj Mahal, this building is going to stand as a visible, massive, and get this, living monument. Because it's made out of living stones. Living monument to the glory of God in the earth. Isn't that amazing? This is why God is building his church, Crossway. This is why he's building his church. So that collectively, not individually, collectively, we would proclaim to our neighborhood and the nations, look what the Lord has done with sinners like us. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it incredible? I think so too. I want you to say that. We're saying that. Come say that with us. Oh, come be a part of this. Do you see why the church matters to God? Do you see why the church is valued by God? You should value the church like God values the church. Don't you want to be in on, get in on this? That this is going to be the greatest building in human history. This is history in the making. You can be a part of history in the making. It's incredible. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of it. In verse 9, the apostle tells us that the people of God is incredibly diverse. There's all kinds of different stones that he's using in this building. We are, an ethnically, we are ethnically diverse because we are a chosen race. That means it's made up of many races, many ethnicities. He's going to choose this and this and this and this, and he's going to make his own people out of that. That's what that means. In chapter 1, Peter says this is made up of believing Galatians and Bithynians and Asians and Cappadocians and people from Pontus. I don't even know where Pontus is, but it's made up from people of Pontus. The people of God is also diverse nationally as well, in nationality. God is gathering people from different civic governments and cultures and to make his people. Later on in the letter, Peter says that the people of God includes men and women, servants and masters, employers and employees, rich and poor, male and female. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Look back again in the text, verse 9. Let's go back there. There's so much I could just... We could just preach the one verse the whole day. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. 
a royal priesthood. So Peter's saying that God is bringing all these different, diverse people together to make up a people of priests. They're going to come together and they're going to be a priesthood. Every believer is a priest, in a sense, is what he's saying. And what do priests do? Well, they make sacrifices. That's what priests do when they get together. They burn stuff up, all right? They just set it on fire and burn up stuff that's valuable. I know that sounds weird, but that's what priests do. They burn up valuable stuff to show off how much more valuable God is. They show off how great God is, okay? So people across ethnic lines and political lines and ethnic lines and lines of gender and lines of social status, they're all coming together to willingly sacrifice what they treasure for the good of others. Here's what I love, and I'm going to burn it up for you so that you benefit, so that you are blessed. They do that collectively because they want the world to see just how magnificent God is and how wise his plan is for us. This is exactly what a priest does for the good of the people. They make sacrifices for people. The church is made up of people who have truly and humbly received Christ's mercy and they're willing to come together to sacrifice for one another. That's a royal priesthood. That's the people of God. And when we sacrifice our weekends, when we burn up our weekends for one another, when we sacrifice our hard-earned paycheck, when we sacrifice our personal freedom and privacy, we sacrifice our own physical bodies for one another, though we are very different from each other, that is a beautiful thing to witness. That is more beautiful than the Taj Mahal all day. It's gorgeous. Amen is right. It is beautiful to see priests making real sacrifices for one another in the name of Jesus because it proclaims the glory of God to the watching world who doesn't believe there's a God or that he's great if he is real. That's how we show them. We've got to do it together. Yes, the church has ugly flaws. She does. We do. Crossway does. And yes, we need to repent about that. Peter's going to talk about that later on. It starts with the house of God and not everybody else out there. And we need to repent of those. Yes. We need to help one another repent of those. Yes, we are not that beautiful close up. Just stick around. Just get a little closer. You'll see kind of there's some junk here. You'll see it. But guess what? This is where we're going. That's the mountaintop where the city on the hill has been built. That's where we're headed, brothers and sisters. That's where we're going, brothers and sisters. And that is something that we should progressively identify with and not fall back from. This is why God has saved you. Yes, you. This is why God saved you. Not just to get you into heaven. As good as that is. Not just to give you a sense of inner peace while you live in earth, on, on earth. As good as that is. It is way bigger than that. The gospel is so much more cosmic. It is so much more, it's just huge. 
God has saved you to make you a part of his people so that together we would proclaim to the entire world just how excellent he is in a way that no one can deny and argue. When the world sees what should be natural-born enemies because we're so different, actually loving one another, that makes them stop and wonder. When they see us sacrificing for one another, not like a little, hey, I got a little extra left over. I'll just give what's left over. No, like sacrifice. Like if you do it, you don't have enough for yourself left over. That's a sacrifice. And they see you and I doing that for one another and loving each other in that way, it forces them to say, only God could have pulled that off. He must be some kind of awesome God. He must be a great God. I must say that. You see, guys, do you see this? It's through our living together, repenting of our sinful behavior together, submitting to Jesus together, sacrificing for one another together, submitting to one another together, that we proclaim how great, powerful, and wise a builder God is. So, so, Lingle, are you saying that I can't glorify God all by myself on my own? Is that what you're saying? Well, no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, according to the Apostle Peter, whatever glory you might give to God all by yourself out in the field somewhere pales in comparison to the glory you give God collectively, being a part of his people. Like, they don't even compare to one another, so stop trying to compare them. They don't. I mean, it is like a dim nightlight compared to the brilliant glory of the sun, of, of the collective church living together. They don't even compare. Sometimes the church does sinful stuff. Can the church say amen? Sometimes the church says stupid things. Can the church say amen? Sometimes we do look like an eyesore in the neighborhood instead of a monument that's beautiful. And people will want us to feel ashamed of being a part of those people, being a part of God's people. There will be a temptation for you and I to disassociate, disavow, separate. You know what I'm saying? To say, hey, you know what? not my people. I mean, these are my people. Those are, I, don't, I don't know them. I'm kind of loosely, I kind of come in and out. You know? Not really my people. I don't know. I'm not one of them. I'm different. And so my question, guys, is this. What gives us the power? Because it's going to take power. Power that you don't have, I don't have. What gives us the power to want to continue to identify with the people of God when it means that we might be despised? for doing so. We might be made fun of. We might be rejected if we do so. What's going to give us the power? Well, it's only in the gospel. It's only in the gospel of Jesus. Let's, let's go back to verse 4. We kind of read over it pretty quick. As you come down. This is, this, the gospel is something we're constantly coming to. We're constantly embracing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not something we just do once. It's our daily bread. 
as you come to him, this is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Jesus, the gospel says that Jesus identified with us so that we could be a part of the people of God. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for Chad. In fact, the gospel says that Jesus identified with us even though it caused him to eventually be rejected by everyone he ever knew and everyone he ever did something nice for. He did it anyway. He identified with you and me. Why? So that you could be known and identified by God. That's why he did it. That's why he made that great sacrifice so that we might be accepted by God. Jesus suffered immense rejection. Rejection you and I will never know in order to claim people that deny him. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that love? He did it for people when the pressure comes would say, it's not really my God. I'm not really into all of that. Some of that, not all of that. I don't really know him. He did that for us. What gives you the power to look at the church and say, yes, those are my people? It's knowing that Jesus looked at you denying him and said, yes. Those are my people. And he's alive today, which means he's still saying to us, yeah, yeah, they're still my people. That's my people. That's the gospel of Jesus. I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much because you first loved us. We didn't even know what love was until you showed it to us. So we thank you. Lord, um, I'm sorry for the times that I'm ashamed to be associated with your people or with you, like Peter. Forgive me. Forgive Crossway. But we thank you that you still look to us and say, you're my people, you're my bride. I can't stop loving you. Help us visibly, actively, collectively come together and associate with the people of God, with the church. Would you help us do that? Change us by your great love. In Jesus' great name, amen.